Let's bow our heads for prayer. Lord, you have heard our voices of prayer to you in these moments. Collectively, we say, my Jesus, I love thee. Individually, we say, my Jesus, I love thee. And today, as we go about our work, as we uh, do the work of the kingdom, we pray that you will honor the work that we do. Thank you for bringing us together in these moments. We pray that uh, our spirits will be lifted and our souls will be fed as we listen to your word preached. Bless uh, our brother, Professor Warrington, as he speaks to us. And uh, may your word get into our lives today in a new and fresh way. You know the concerns that we bring with us, and we pray that you will take those into your arms as we try to relax and focus our attention in other ways. In your name we pray, amen. I invite you to uh, turn to the 11th chapter of the book of Acts this morning and uh, invite you to keep that passage, that chapter open. We'll look at some of the verses in there this morning. Uh, the 11th chapter of Acts falls into two parts. The first 18 verses uh, deals exclusively with retelling the story that we find in chapter 10. And the last 12 verses, which is our text for today, deals with the growth of the Christian movement, which is what we want to spend a little time today, the growth of the Christian movement among the Gentiles. And it is only necessary to mention the first part of the chapter uh, I believe because it prepares us for what follows uh, in order to see the wider and most remarkable movement that begins in Antioch. Uh, news, of course, reached Jerusalem that the Gentiles had received the Word of God. And uh, the attitude of the apostles towards this news indicated in the declaration that they contended with Peter. They didn't like uh, the fact that Peter had gone to the home of a Gentile and that uh, they were not so concerned about him preaching to them more than probably eating with them. Uh, uh, the table fellowship somehow would tie them to the idolatry of Gentiles and so they were particularly concerned of the uncleanness that would incur. In chapter 10 verse 20 we read, so uh, the Spirit of the Lord told Peter, get up and go downstairs, do not hesitate to go with them for I have sent them. And in chapter 11 of our text today, and uh, verse 12, the Spirit told me, Peter said, to have no hesitation about going with them. And the word hesitation or, or doubting is almost an insufficient word 
to convey what uh, the Spirit is trying to tell Peter. The Spirit of God commanded Peter to go with these men without wavering, without discriminating, without making distinction. You see, for centuries the Jews had made distinction between themselves and Gentiles. And now the Spirit of God was sending Peter to the house of Cornelius and uh, telling him not to make distinction, just go. Not to discriminate, just go. Not to waver, not to hesitate. And, uh, but when he came to Jerusalem, fresh from the house of Cornelius, they were discriminating. They did not like the fact that he had gone there. They contended with him, debated with him, and then he had to retell the story again. He, he told them that the Spirit had charged him to go with these men, doing nothing of this kind, not wavering, not contending. So in order to help them, he told them the story through which he had passed and by which he had been delivered from making such distinction. He told the story of his visit to the house of Cornelius and that even before he had delivered the message that was on his heart, before he had preached to them, the Holy Spirit fell on them. Who were there listening to him? So having told his story to the brethren in Jerusalem, Peter said, Who was I? Who am I that I should withstand God? So that kind of calmed the apostles in Jerusalem. Kind of, they stopped their contending and their wavering and their distinctions and their discriminations as to why Peter would go into the house of a Gentile. And so the wisdom and graciousness of the Jerusalem brethren were manifest in the fact that when this, he said this, they held their peace. Their contending was over. And so all of this then prepares us for what will take place in the next 12 verses of chapter 11. Of the last 12 verses of chapter 11. How the Spirit led a group of men, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, to do the unconventional, to push the envelope a little further to to go to Antioch unauthorized by Jerusalem to preach the gospel to people previously ignored and it is a remarkable story I believe of the early church so let's look at it. In verses 19 through 21, I want to read, and I will read those as we move along. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Verse 20, some of them, however, 
men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling the good news, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. We see the initiation of this new movement in these uh, three verses that we read. The story of continuity is seen in verse 19. They were scattered through persecution, is how this new work began. Uh, of course, it, the text tells us that the martyrdom of Stephen, the brethren were scattered. Uh, they, the, but they were speaking the message, particularly it says here, only to Jews. They were speaking the message, but only to Jews. Traveling and speaking the message. If the saints are scattered and if they are spirit-filled, they, they do but scatter the seed of the kingdom, which is the word of God. These men of Cyprus and Cyrene came to Antioch and began to preach to Greeks. Uh, I want you to see the picture here. Uh, the words you scattered and persecuted, traveling and speaking. Uh, they are so filled with Jesus, that in spite of their difficulty of being scattered, of be, having to leave their homes and their work, and uh, yet on the way they're speaking, uh, there are several different words used here for communicating the gospel. This one is they're speaking. This is a common uh, uh, tongue, their common discourse as they're living their lives scattered, persecuted, they're sharing the good news. As they're traveling, they're speaking. A different word used. This time it is the usual word, uanglizo, the word for preaching. So they're speaking it and they're preaching it, the good news of Jesus Christ. That was a new beginning for them. You see, Antioch, uh, when they arrived in Antioch, uh, they preached to Greeks. They preached to Greeks. Antioch was wealthy, a magnificent city, and was described as one of the eyes of Asia, the third great city of the world at that time. Rome, of course, being the first and Alexandria the second. But Antioch was the residence of a Roman prefect with his court, and it was a place of a large Jewish colony. But it was supremely Greek. Antioch, where heathenism appeared in its most tempting and debased form. It was of such magnificence that its main street ran for four miles through the length of the city. But these men preached to Greeks not in an obscure village, but in this great city. Notice that the work in Antioch resulted from no immediate actions or action from the apostles. 
these instruments chosen by the Spirit and sent to Antioch for the initiation of the larger fulfillment of the purpose of God are unnamed. They simply said men from Cyprus and Cyrene. The lesson of the passage is that the Spirit of God ever moves out in new direction apart from all officialism. Simple men of Cyprus and Cyrene, unnamed, pioneers, traveling, found themselves in magnificent Antioch, but sinful Antioch. And they determined without consultation with anyone to preach the gospel not merely to the Jews, but also to the Greeks. And the result we see in the passage is the tremendous harvest of people to the Lord. So we see the movement initiated. But we also see something else in this text. We see the confirmation of this movement. In, in verses 22 through 24, if you look at this with me, news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. That when he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people again were brought to the Lord. The report that the gospel had been preached to Gentiles reached the apostles in Jerusalem. They had been prepared, of course, by Peter's experience uh, for this particular report. And so quickly they dispatched Barnabas uh, to Antioch to check this out. I get a feeling that uh, they sent uh, Barnabas to see if this thing was legitimate. Almost to spy, to see what's going on. But... Uh, Although Barnabas was not himself one of the apostles, he was very close to them. And note also that he was from Cyprus. Uh, the selection to send Barnabas was very timely. And it was some of his countrymen who were involved in this unauthorized work. They had hardly reached Peter's understanding of not wavering and not contending and, and not showing discrimination when this thing breaks out in Antioch. But when Barnabas reached Antioch, the text says he saw the grace of God. There can be no question that when he came into the company of the believing Greeks in Antioch, into the fellowship of those who had been gathered about these men of Cyprus and Cyrene. He detected the supreme spiritual evidences of the divinity of their work in the tone and temper of the men in the midst of whom he found himself. Later in the chapter, in the book of Acts, in chapter 19, Paul came to Ephesus and he missed such marks uh, that in, in the brethren there at Antioch. And in fact, he asked in an astonished way, he asked, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, since you believed? Paul didn't find the evidence of the grace 
and the tone and the temper and the, the sweetness and the joy of uh, the, the, the Holy Spirit's work when he went to Ephesus and asked the question. But not Barnabas. When Barnabas arrived in Antioch, he saw the grace of God. He saw evidences of that. Barnabas coming to Antioch found the evidences of grace, a new tone and disposition, evidences of joy and light and happiness, all that which characterizes the presence of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. Notice also in the text he exhorted them. Interesting, the word used for exhort is this, in the same family of words, parakletos, paraclete, for the Holy Spirit. In fact, they named him, they nicknamed him Barnabas, son of comfort, son of encouragement. And here he is exhorting them. Notice what he says to them. He, he was glad and encouraged them uh, all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts, with all their hearts to stay true uh, to the Lord. He was, uh, notice that Barnabas is described not in an official capacity. He had no title. He was not himself an apostle. But he's described as to his character. He was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and faith. We see in our text this movement was entirely, again, apart from any authorization from the, the, the brethren in Jerusalem. Now we see that there was to be no schism in the body of Christ. By connecting Barnabas with the work in Antioch, Jerusalem and Antioch are now one. Although it started without their authorization, yet it never remained an independent work. It's a lesson for us in terms of the unity of Christ's church. There's one faith, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father of us all. Paul mentions that in the book of Ephesians. There's a third development in the movement that gives us an arresting picture in our text. Barnabas leaves the work in Antioch and he goes out to find Paul. Saul. The consolidation of the work. Not only do we see the initiation of it and the, and the confirmation of it from Jerusalem, but now the consolidation of the work as Barnabas heads to Tarsus. He leaves Antioch for the, not for Jerusalem, but for Tarsus. If you recall, years earlier, Barnabas had helped Paul escape those who would try to kill him in Jerusalem. Paul had spent several years now in Tarsus. There's no record of his activity there, but no doubt he was preaching and uh, continuing to evangelize in that area of the world. The scripture indicates that he went actually to hunt him down, to hunt him. He did not know exactly where to find him, but the text indicates that he went hunting for him, looking for him, searching for him. And when he found him, he brought Paul back to Antioch, Paul to Antioch, and for a full year, they gathered with the church teaching. Look at it with me. Verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. 
So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Uh, notice uh, again different words for communicating the gospel. They were speaking, they were preaching, now they are teaching. Teaching them for a full year. As we look back on the work, we are impressed by the group of people gathered together in Antioch. Antioch would pass and perish in the running of the centuries, of course. But that new movement, the inclusion of Greeks within the work of the Spirit through the Church of Jesus Christ, was destined to spread through all neighborhood, all the neighborhood, and eventually to capture the whole world. The Antiochians called the believers Christians. This name was not self-designated. It was not given by themselves, by the brethren there. Neither was it given to them by the Jews. Otherwise they would have to say they were men of the Messiah if, they, if Jews had named them. But the Antiochians saw them. Whether it is a nickname of contempt, most likely. But it shows first that Antioch recognized the church as different from Judaism. Uh, it was a new society that must have its own name. It also shows that Antioch saw in them uh, something. They were the people of the Christ. Whomever he, he may be. Whoever he might have been, the people of the Christ. And so it was of the Christ they spoke, of the Christ they sang, of the Christ they lived. And so they called them little Christs, Christians, first in Antioch. So in all of this we see the free operation of the Holy Spirit manifested. The man of the apostolic confidence, Barnabas, sought the man born out of due season, Saul of Tarsus. Barnabas appears to have acted upon his own initiative. He did not even check with Jerusalem whether he should go get Saul. He went just like the folks from Cyprus and Cyrene on their own initiative, went and pushed through into Antioch to start a new work for God. Yet in response to this guiding, indwelling Spirit of God, we see a new work is forged. We now come to a fourth development in this new movement in verses 27 through 30. Luke makes us aware of the prophetic ministry of a group from Jerusalem. Notice he says, during this time, verse 27, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. Luke tells us this happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples each, according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas 
and Saul. This is the first mention of a, of a prophet in the New Testament economy. The predictive nature of this work is evident as Agabus foretold the coming of a famine, great famine. What is amazing is the unity we see unfolding. The Greeks who had heard and believed the gospel with evidences of grace which Barnabas had seen. They had received the teaching of Barnabas and Saul for one full year and grew in that grace of God. When they heard from Agabus the prophet that a severe famine would hit their brethren in Judea, when, when, when they spontaneously began to care for the brethren, under no directive from the apostles, but out of a new life which has love at its heart. This is a glorious tribute to the oneness of the Spirit, obedience to prophecy, expressing itself in love, and love taking on the practical form of definite help sent to those in Judea who would suffer the most as a result of this famine. You see, in our passage, we see a variety of spiritual gifts at work. We see the apostolic gift, the evangelistic gift, the prophetic gift, the teaching gift, the pastoral gift. It reminds me of a passage in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It was he who gave some to be apostles, and some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for the works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. You see, this passage reminds us of why we exist as the people of God and as an institution. It, it, it brings to bear why we're here. We're here to make Christ-like disciples. We're here to advance the cause of Christ. To be instruments in the hand of, the God, of God under the wind of His Spirit. To advance His kingdom. We're here because the great missionary God Himself, a sent God, wants to breathe resurrection power into His people to join Him in His mission. It was the great missionary Leslie Newbegin. And over the last few years I have delved much in his writing in preparation for my own writing. And it is he who coined the phrase Missio Dei, the mission of God. You see, the mission of God is that the Father sent the Son the Father and the Son sent the Spirit. Now the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the triune Godhead, now sends the church in mission. And that's what we see took place in Antioch with these men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Unnamed men broke the status quo. They pushed the safe and predictable. They, they chose to ride a motorcycle instead of a lawnmower. 
They did the unthinkable. They, they preached the gospel to Greeks. They probably would not have received permission to do so had they asked. But under the direction of the Spirit, they took the initiative and went to the third leading city in the world at that time and set up shop. Because they, like us, believe that the gospel is for everyone. Amen. This is who we are. We are Christian. We are holy. And we are missional. And like our founder who said almost a century ago, the sun never sets on the church of the Nazarene. There is no good night, only good morning. And you'd ask, they said you'd ask Dr. Brzee even at uh, 10 o'clock at night, how are you? Hello. And he says, good morning. Because the sun never set on the church of the Nazarene. It is always good morning in the church, never good night. May it also be so for each one of us and for Nazarene Bible College this morning. Let's join him in mission. Like these unnamed men, ordinary men, scattered they were, persecuted they were, but they, had, they caught a vision of joining and partnering with God to preach the gospel, to speak it, to proclaim it, to teach it, and even to prophesy it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for who you are in our lives and give us the courage to join you in mission to see that the harvest is indeed plentiful it's white unto harvest the fields are white and that you're calling on us to partner with you to reach out oh God plant in us this morning a new vision a new joy of serving you, a new passion for the gospel and for those that are yet unreached. Help us to be cross-cultural in our thinking. Help us to, be, uh, to defy the, the status quo, and, oh God, to see beyond the ordinary and to see what you see in your world. Give us a fullness of your spirit so that indeed we are sent by your spirit. We love you this morning. Help us, Lord, to see our neighbors in a new eyes, new way, to see our communities, to see our world through redemptive eyes. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Amen.